Hello, and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast in the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer. And with World Rhino Day being observed on the 22nd of September, in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at how these magnificent horned mammals are doing. Joining me is Taylor Tench, a Senior Wildlife Policy Analyst at EIA and our resident rhino expert. Taylor, welcome, and thanks for taking the time out to share your thoughts with us. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And particularly thanks as you're coming to us on this occasion live from Vietnam. So it's, I appreciate it's a totally different time in the world where you are. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's good. It's almost dinner time. So right after this, grabbing a beer meal on a nice plastic stool. <laughs> will not keep you too long. <laughs> um, to kick us off, um, to judge from the recorded seizures of rhino horn being smuggled around the world, it would appear that much of the past decade has been a particularly tough one for the species. Could you give us a quick overview as to how rhinos are doing in general in terms of numbers and their threat status? Sure. So uh, white rhinos in particular have been uh, especially hard hit from a rhino poaching crisis that's been ongoing since about the late 2000s. Uh, in the past decade alone, uh, the continental white rhino population, which is found in countries throughout southern and eastern Africa, uh, has dropped by 25% due almost exclusively to poaching pressure. Um, in South Africa, which is home to the majority of, of, of Africa's white rhino population, they've lost 16 uh, percent of their rhinos over that time. And that's really where uh, the poaching has, has been concentrated. Black rhinos are critically endangered species. Um, the other African rhino species uh, and their numbers are, are hovering between, you know, 3,500 and 4,000, um, increasing slightly each year. But uh, that's down from, you know, several hundred thousand uh, a few decades ago uh, in the, in the mid-1900s. So um, they have a long way to go. Uh, they're also affected by poaching and uh, in particular because these are more solitary species as opposed to white rhinos that are you know, more herding and, and, and graze. Uh, the black rhinos need more space and it's, it's harder to find uh, habitat, suitable habitat that's both ecologically, uh, you know, what they need and also safe from poaching pressure. And, and briefly, what about Asian rhinos? What's the status for them? Uh, yeah, so there's three Asian rhino species. Uh, the most numerous is the one-horned rhino, uh, which is found in India and Nepal. Uh, they're considered vulnerable by the IUCN. Um, there's actually been a bit of an uptick in poaching over the past few months there, which is a bit concerning, unclear if it's a, a trend or just a, a blip. But um, yeah, they're, they're right around 5,000 uh, individuals. Um, again, only found in, in northern India and Nepal, just in a couple parks. Uh, the other two species of rhino, uh, one is the Javan rhino, uh, which is found in one national park on the tip of the island of Java in Indonesia. There's uh, you know less than 100 of those remaining. Um, their major threat really is uh, habitat, available habitat. There's been talks for for years about trying to establish a new population, a new protected area um, on Java, but that, that just hasn't happened and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, and probably the most at-risk species of extinction when it comes to rhinos is the Sumatran rhino, uh, which is found on the island of Sumatra, unsurprisingly in Indonesia. And then um, there's maybe a handful, at least one uh, in Indonesian Borneo. The species actually went extinct in Malaysian Borneo, uh, just a few years ago, uh, so it's it's really in dire straits. 
Our own um, EIA Global Environmental Crime Tracker um, shows an alarming and fairly consistent rise in the amount of horn that's being seized around the world from 2012 to 2019, but then a fairly slow decline in the years following. Is there any particular reason for this? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think initially um, the the drop in you know publicly reported seizures uh, was linked to the COVID uh, crisis, you know, closed borders, lack of uh, transportation links, especially because rhino horn, um, unlike some other, you know, illicit wildlife products that are that are shipped in shipping containers, um, primarily with rhino horn, most of the shipments uh, from Africa to Asia take place in uh, air luggage. Um, and so with, with the cancellation of flights and international travel for, for some time, that, that really, um, you know, put a halt to, to seizures that we were seeing publicly reported. Um, and there has been a drop down in rhino poaching, uh, since 2020, but it's really risen back up to, you know, a, a few hundred each year between 300 and 400. Um, and that number stayed steady over the past few years. And so it, it would seem as if, uh, rhino horn is increasingly being stockpiled, um, in Africa. Uh, so it's, it's a trend we're paying attention to, but, but still a few questions that need to be answered. Okay, thanks for that. Um, a bit before your time, maybe, but back in 1992, EIA launched a fairly aggressive campaign directly targeting Taiwan after our investigations revealed it to be the worst culprit for open sales of Rhino Horn at that time. Um, I seem to recall it, it caused quite a diplomatic stir, but three days later, the president of Taiwan banned all Rhino Horn trade. Um, we'd obviously like to see more action that prompt in future. Um, but since then, which countries have stepped into Taiwan's vacated shoes as the main consumers of Rhino Horn? Uh, main consumers of rhino horn are China and Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is also a very important transit hub for rhino horn moving into China, although there is consumption there as well. And it, it really is China and Vietnam is the main consumers and Chinese and Vietnamese uh, organized criminal networks operating in Africa and Asia are, are the ones controlling the trade in rhino horn. And, and what are the main drivers um, of demand for the horns in the first place? I mean, I suppose what I mean is what do consumers actually want it for? What do they use it for? Uh, two main drivers and uses of rhino horn. The first is uh, for medicinal purposes, uh, traditional medicine, both in, in China uh, and in Vietnam. Um, the second, I mean, which is actually now the predominant use of rhino horn is for carvings, uh, to carve trinkets, uh, cups, brooches, amulets. Uh, other other carvings that that denote status, they're luxury items, um, and that that's the the key driver, uh, demand driver today. Well, wasn't it the case that a few years ago? I seem to remember reading quite a few reports, um, and certainly I've seen them um, across EIA's table. Um, that it was being sought after as a sort of rather hip designer drug for the young set in nightclubs. Um, I believe Vietnam was often cited as a place. Is was that much of a problem, and is it still? In in 2012, which was really sort of the near the peak between 2012 and 2015, it was the peak of the poaching and, and subsequently trafficking crisis of rhino rhino horn, and uh, that's when Vietnam really emerged as the major player. Uh, and in addition to historic uses of rhino horn, which is more for traditional medicine, where it's believed to be a fever reducer and have a cooling effect. And um, of course, there were rhino carvings since ancient times. Uh, there were these these new fads that were being uh, that were cropping up uh, marketed by by traders and and um, a, sort of a new generation of, of affluent consumer where yes, uh, it was 
seen that rhino horn ground rhino horn is being consumed at at parties uh you know as a potential hangover cure um and, and to head off a hangover um there was also rumors that rhino horn could cure cancer um so people were you know desperately trying to acquire rhino horn as you know kind of a sad situation as a last ditch uh, potential uh, you know remedy for for cancer patients uh, relatives they may know of course it has no no medical effects um and so th- those uses have have died down it really is more the ornamental uh carvings that's that's the main driver and then for specific sort of old school wealthy uh traditional medicine users are still consuming rhino horn as as medicine for the more traditional fever reducing purported uh benefits well, thanks for that. Huh? Now, S- South Africa is home to a huge proportion of the world's remaining wild rhinos, but it seems to have embraced a philosophy of if it pays, it stays, uh, which has kind of resulted in the private uh, rhino farming industry growing in the name of conservation. Uh, what impact do you think this has had on rhinos generally? Yeah, so South Africa is it's the you know bedrock of Africa's rhino population, especially for white rhinos. Um, although they have a significant population of black rhinos, only exceeded by Namibia's national population of black rhino, um, and it's it's the way wildlife is managed and utilized in South Africa is is rather unique. Um, there is a large sort of game breeding and, and and game management industry in South Africa, and that's involves everything from antelopes um, to species like rhinos and elephants. Um, and so there's both state, state owned protected areas, state managed protected areas that have rhinos, like your national parks or provincial parks. And then there's also privately owned rhinos that are held in private game reserves. And they, they, they quite literally are private property for a, uh, you know, a, their owner to do with them as they will. And so there's rhinos kept in private hands in South Africa are managed under a variety of different, uh, management styles. And in some instances, they're, they're basically just left to roam freely for, you know, photographic tourism and to serve their sort of natural ecosystem. And there really is no management other than them being in an enclosed area. It's just kind of treated as a smaller national park. And then on the totally opposite end of the spectrum, you do have uh, a couple, you know, some individuals who have decided to farm rhinos um, with a goal of acquiring horn, which you can acquire from rhinos without killing the animal. It does grow back. Um, and stockpiling that horn in, in the hopes that one day uh, trade will be legalized internationally and they can they can cash in. So that that is uh, it, it. The idea of, of breeding rhino to stockpile horn is uh, really undermines the global conservation efforts um, that uh, governments around the world have been dedicating themselves to for for years and the funds and resources that have been, been pumped into rhino conservation by sort of hoping to undo laws that are designed to protect rhinos, both on the international level and then in these countries like China and Vietnam, they've done work to, uh, you know, improve their penal codes and their their domestic legislation to take a more firm stance against rhino horn trades, particularly in Vietnam. Um, and so because there are a few speculative, you know, individuals out there that that wish to cash in themselves um it does undermine uh and the conservation efforts and prevents the the whole world from being on the same page yeah i i guess basically if you're saving wider horn and stop piling it 
in anticipation of trade becoming legal again, you're subliminally sending out a message to everybody that, hey, it's only just around the corner we're going to start selling this stuff again. So don't worry taking bans too seriously. Yeah? Exactly. And it's a, it's a major enforcement risk. Um, we see stockpile thefts um, from both private stockpiles um, and privately held stockpiles and government held stockpiles. Uh, just earlier this summer in June, over 50 rhino horns were stolen from a provincial uh, stockpile, provincial management authority stockpile in South Africa. Um, the horns have not been recovered. There have been a couple arrests, but um, it's the investigation has been, there's been no details on, released on how the investigation is proceeding. Um, it's always almost certainly conducted with inside help from within the agency. Um, and we've seen stockpiled horn being seized internationally um, alongside poached rhino horn. Uh, so it's, we know rhino horn is leaking into the illegal trade. It's stimulating demand. It's causing enforcement problems and just exacerbates, uh, you know, corruption issues, especially as exemplified by this, this case from the summer I just mentioned. I guess one of the best things to do in that case with stop hold horn is simply destroy it. I mean, as long as you're holding onto it, there's, it's got no intrinsic worth or value in itself other than what it's required for illegally. So if you get rid of it, then you just you know you're clearing the decks effectively. Exactly, and that's something you know that's that's what EIA advocates for: a stockpile destruction, unless it's needed for you know an actual enforcement investigation, um, and of course very thorough auditing to make sure evidence isn't destroyed in, in a, a stockpile destruction. But yes, getting rid of this uh, illegal commodity is is the best way to, to address the stockpile problem. Well, back in 2017, uh, John Hume, who's been the biggest and arguably one of the most visible pro-trade advocates um, of South Africa's rhino farmers, won a legal battle to lift the country's 2009 ban on domestic trading horns, and that's despite an international ban being in effect since 1977. As well as saying it was a bid to fund his operation, he also claimed that the move would help reduce the value of horns on the legal market. Is, is there any evidence that that argument holds water at all? Uh, no, there's there's no evidence that that, that holds water. And yeah, so in South Africa, uh, there you are legally allowed to trade rhino horn domestically. Um, it has to be whole raw horn. Um, it can't be modified in any way. Um, and it comes with a, uh, there are a number of permits that one has to apply for to both purchase and, and uh, sell the rhino horn. Of course, as you may imagine, we've seen cases where uh, horn has been seized in abuse of this domestic trade regulatory system. In fact, uh, nearly 200 of John Hume's horns were uh, seized in a botched domestic trade deal um, with two individuals uh, arrested and convicted in that case. Um, and yet the argument that that illegal legal sales will will drive down prices um, as, as is not the case. Uh, we've, we've seen evidence of that for other high value uh, wildlife products like ivory. Um, we know that legal markets for rhino horn were a big uh, demand driver in the uh, you know 1970s and 80s, uh, particularly in China, uh, was driving the poaching. Um, and it certainly wasn't uh, uh, depressing prices. Um, and the fact is that you know traders, if if, the, if there's value ascribed to rhino horn, there's money to be made. Um, there's no way the a legal uh, domestic supply could ever uh, meet the potential consumer demand. And traders and traffickers will will undercut prices. They'll provide. Uh, we've we've seen 
uh, in Asia in particular, a higher demand and willingness to pay higher prices for wild sourced products of, of wildlife as opposed to, to captive captive bred. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, not a, there, there's a lot of speculation and, and assumptions that aren't backed up by data with that argument. I'm assuming, um, just for clarification, that there's no actual credible demand of any size in South Africa itself for rhino horn as a product. It, it doesn't do the traditional medicine, party drugs, um, ornamental carving thing necessarily on the same scale as, as you, you see it in Asia. Yeah? Right. There's no there's no demand for rhino horn in South Africa. Uh, the only reason uh, that there has been any sort of domestic trade is just uh, speculators consolidating stocks, again, in the hope that one day this will be an investment that they can cash in on, even though at the international level, there has been uh, no indication that that the world's governments are are willing to overturn the ban on international trade in rhino horn. There's been proposals submitted at the last three CITES meetings to do just that, and they've all been uh, overwhelmingly defeated. Excellent. Uh, Recently, Hume announced he was putting his animals up for sale because he could no longer afford their upkeep. Um, presumably in the absence of an international market to which you can sell the horns. Um, after some concern that a buyer couldn't be found, um, I read recently that an NGO, African Parks, has stepped in and now plans to release the 2,000 winos um, from him by buying them off him back into the wild. Uh, what, what are your feelings about this? Yeah, so, you know, Hume is a, a controversial uh, player in the rhino horn, uh, or the rhino uh, conservation world. Um one thing he has managed to do is create a lot of rhinos, uh, which from a pure population standpoint is good. More rhinos are better. The problem is uh, his breeding program was not based on a sustainable funding model. Um, he poured in a lot of his life savings to uh, to this uh, rhino breeding project, which have run out. And he always made he had made the gamble from the beginning that he and, and you know others who advocate for legalizing trade would be able to overturn the international ban and, and cash in and, and and you know recoup losses that didn't happen uh, so he has you know finally had to to liquidate and sell the farm and, and get rid of the rhinos um, unfortunately it's it's uh, very difficult to find anyone who's willing to you know a put forth that kind of money to to acquire these these rhinos in this property not only just to purchase them up front but also uh, you know maintain uh, management of them over time uh, certainly government agencies in South Africa and abroad don't have the kind of funds to do that then there's a question of well where do you put them um, and in because a, a key challenge is finding not only suitable habitat but safe suitable habitat and habitat that will be not only safe now, but safe in the future. And so the fact that African Parks has stepped in uh, to purchase these rhinos and has committed to, you know, fate, you know, to stop the, the, the breeding, the speed breeding for breeding sake, and is looking to rewild these rhinos into natural habitats, protected areas, well-managed protected areas. Um, it's, it's, it's great. It's to, to put, to put it mildly, it's kind of the, best case scenario, best case outcome uh, for these rhinos. There was a lot of pessimism about what might happen, um, considering no no buyers stepped up at the original auction to, to purchase the rhinos on the farm. Uh, so I think their vision is excellent. I think what they're trying to do is great. Um, it's also incredibly, immensely, overwhelmingly challenging. Um, but I think they're 
very aware of the challenges. If they didn't think they could succeed, they wouldn't have taken what is a risk, um, to be honest. Uh, I think, you know, they've, they've already seen interest expressed from a number of countries uh, to take in some of these rhinos um, provided, you know, there's a lot that has to be to be done first, make sure rhinos that have been not least of which is making sure rhinos that have been managed intensively are able to function uh, and, and live uh, in a you know, less intensively managed, more wild environment. Um, it's, it seems like they most likely will be, but again, it's just one of many things on the checklist to go through. But uh, overall, it's good news and um, really hope this, this long-term project succeeds and that it helps replenish wild rhino populations, uh, not only in South Africa, but, but throughout their historic range and it's it's and it's successful in the long term. Excellent. It's, it's nice to hear for once about a challenge in a positive direction rather than a challenge trying to fight off the bad guys all the time. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, to, to wrap up, um, what what do you think the prospects are for rhinos in the wild, um, and, and and what more do you think needs to be done to give them uh, a viable, uh, secure future? I think for for African rhino species. Um, I think there is certainly hope on the horizon. I think from from the total chaos of you know 2012 to around 2015, where every population was under threat, no one knew what to do or how to where to even start to really get a, a grasp on the problem. Now we've come a long way. A lot of progress has been made, um, and I think now sort of we're just left with the hardest most fundamental issues to address. So the needle's been moved very far, but but moving it fully the whole way is, is what's going to take just as much, if not more, effort and resources uh, addressing sort of the systemic issues with sort of international cooperation and trust building uh, to take down, you know, these organized criminal networks which are controlling the trade uh, from Southern Africa to, to Asia. On the Asian side, um, with the one-horned rhino and and well, with all the species in Asia, the biggest challenge at the moment is uh, finding more suitable habitat to grow the populations. They're at about, for, for the Javan and one-horned rhinos, they're at about capacity in their respective protected areas. Um, and it's not, you know, I think there's a lot more to do to, more work to be done to find new habitats for them. Uh, the Sumatran rhino is a we could have a whole podcast series about the, the issues and challenges facing the Sumatran rhino, but it really is um, facing some of the, you know, it's, I think it's, it's the most at risk of extinction. And if, if major um, interventions are not made and not made successfully, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, there's a very real risk. We, we lose that species in our lifetime. Um, so, but on the African side, a, a lot of hope, a lot of work, but, but there's hope for sure. Excellent stuff. Well, good luck with that. And um, obviously come back and keep us um, abreast of, of how things are going in the future, yeah? Yeah, would love to. Well, Taylor, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And um, I guess I'll say in advance, happy World Rhino Day. And um, I'll let you go and get some dinner now. Uh, perfect. And happy World Rhino Day. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, man. Thanks. Hey, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes. And check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us, and wherever you are, stay safe out there.